So, you know how we have, like, a shared HBO account? Yes. I actually remembered last night because it was, like, 1230, and I'm sitting in bed on YouTube, like, you know, getting ready for bed. It's Saturday night. I didn't do anything, (laughs) like, whatever. And then I saw um, one of the suggested videos was Celine Dion singing that song, Ashes, (laughs) from Deadpool 2. And, of course, my train of thought was, oh, my gosh, I want to watch Deadpool 2. And so I go to my TV and, like, find it. And it's like, oh, it's on HBO. And I was like, we have HBO. (laughs) Yeah. I. um, What's funny is, so that means last night I was on HBO. You were on HBO. Mama was on HBO. And I have a friend who I shared our login with who's on HBO. And we can all watch it apparently at the same time. Apparently, if y'all were watching it at between 12.30 and 2.30. I definitely was. I have been... Okay, I know you don't care about this, but maybe some of our listeners do. Hey, guys. I'm sure most Um, of them do because, like, yeah. So, I have been watching Game of Thrones. Now, I've seen it all already, but with season eight about to come out, um, I think when you guys listen to this, it's two days after it comes out. But with season eight about to come out, I was like, oh... I should totally rewatch seasons one through seven. Of course, I made this decision like two weeks ago, but you know what? I'm already almost done with season six, so clearly I'm going to make it, but I've just been binging Game of Thrones. You know, there's so much that I missed because that show was so detailed that like watching, I'm so glad I made the decision to watch it all through. Don't feel bad about it at all that I'm literally sitting in my apartment for hours upon hours upon hours just watching Game of Thrones. Not, I mean, not getting sleep, you know, I'm very tired, like, all the time, but it's so, worth it. <laughs> I feel like I need to defend myself with me not liking Game of Thrones, because I feel like every time I say that, everyone's like, no, you just have to watch it. And I mean, it's I true. I watched uh, the entire first season. Like, I sat and watched the whole That's thing. That's like the setup season. I mean, it was fun. At the end of it... There wasn't a part of me that was like, I wonder what happens to everyone next. I was like, okay. I mean, it's really cool that she like walked out of the fire and all, but all right. Well, for everyone else in the world who loves Game of Thrones, um, I'm really excited. But But I gave it the college try. You did give it the college try. You did. Which this actually makes me think of something that I haven't yet started to watch. Um, before I say that, though, hey, everyone, this is Blood and Wine. Oh, yes. I'm Brittany. Hello, I'm Tyler. And um, this is Blood and Wine, like I already said. Whatever, you know. Yep. Hey, guys. You know. <laughs> Let's just do it all over. Hey, guys. Are no, we just going to get into a loop? <laughs> yeah, it's just a continuous loop of the same thing. Um, no, oh, God. This is episode 49. Seriously, guys, can't believe it that we're already getting... My God, next week is 50, which means we're also like three episodes away from our one year. I know. We are. It's coming terrifying. up so soon. May 17th is like our official one year from like yeah. when we went live. So oh that's my really exciting, that's actually. one month away. I know. It's a month away. Um, we'll have to do something really fun for that episode. For like the episode that comes out that week or whatever. Because I think the 17th yeah. is really like a Friday or something. No, so another show that I need to start is The Act on Hulu. Yes. So I have been not obsessed, but kind of obsessed with the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case 
for like a couple years have now. you watched the mother dead and dearest documentary on hbo no i have not that needs to be your next um, thing like watch that before the act i've at least seen that to me it's so fascinating and horrifying and oh my gosh oh so, it is a case like literally for the books i mean it yeah there is there's nothing like that like munchausen's by proxy is terrifying mm-hmm. and like yeah such a very interesting disorder well and it's the one reason i have not watched the act yet is i have um don't have enough time to like watch it all in a two or three day sitting right and i feel like that's one that i will do that so i'm like okay i'm just gonna wait till like i have a free weekend and binge it yeah because oh my god and just from what i've seen of the trailers the acting in it looks incredible well and i've heard it's gotten some good responses like i think people are enjoying it okay yeah maybe after i'm done with game of thrones that's on my list you know my ever-growing list that's i know somehow longer than yours because i actually want to watch all the things i know my list like things get added and then silently removed like it's a work calendar (laughs) (laughs) just like you're like where'd that go Okay. I thought I, I could have sworn I had a one o'clock meeting today. But yeah, I am um, basically my plan is I want to get these things finished more or less before the beginning of June because that's when The Handmaid's Tale comes back. Oh my god! And yes, that is one that I will be like because I think that's one of the ones that Hulu does like Weekly. one episode a week mm-hmm. instead of all at once. I think either it was either season one or two or maybe both but like the first week they released more than one episode like it was like when the day dropped it was like two or three were available so i don't so know if they're doing that every enough season enough for not. you to like start a binge yeah. and then be like no where's the rest i know exactly come where you back get excited every... about binging and then you quickly realize like the binge is over yeah because basically i had forgotten that i was like almost two weeks behind gray's anatomy this week oh yeah i got so caught, I caught up, up too. and i don't know i just don't have that much time yeah well hey you guys don't forget about Patreon. Um, that's our platform where you guys can support us and where we've got our amazing murder minis. We're about to do, I think, murder mini 20 next week. Yeah. Or something like that. But like, seriously, that's 20 more episodes than we have in our free content. So definitely check that I out. Know. They're like, they're really fun. And I feel like they're just getting better and better. Absolutely. I mean, some of the cases we've done lately, I'm like, okay. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. This could have been a full episode and maybe should have, but. Oh, well. Oh, that happens Y'all to me get it. all the time where I'm like, hey, I totally could have done that in an episode. Which I feel like that happened to me last week or like on the last one where I got mm-hmm. through my research and I was like, damn, this actually would have been a really good case. But it yeah. was really exciting for Murder Mini too. And I kind of want to do that. Ones that are like, so yeah, if you guys are thinking like, oh, those are just the small little cases. No, they're literally legit cases that we oftentimes are like, shit, should have been a full yeah. episode. But yeah, because I think at the beginning, the idea was like, oh, these are cases that like are shorter or just don't have a ton of information, right. but are still interesting. And sometimes we'll still find those, but now it's becoming more of like, we find a case and we're like, no, I don't want to wait till the next recording to do it. Yeah. Like I'm going to do this. I don't want to wait until this fits into a topic. Um, yes. But yeah, so there are different tiers, different things that you get, um, you know, pick the topic for an episode. If you're our top tier, you know, free stickers for some of the tiers, just like handwritten notes, all the fun stuff. But um, be sure to check us out on Patreon. And while you're checking us out on Patreon, also make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast. Podcast. 
It's a difficult phrase to say, podcast. Yeah. On your podcast platform of choice. So Spotify, uh, I almost said Hulu. I don't don't, <laughs> I don't think, think we're that's on one. Hulu. No. Um, we're not there but yet. But no, Spotify, day, Apple Podcasts, um, SoundCloud, all the Podbean, you know, my favorite one. <laughs> um, so just, yeah, uh, make sure to subscribe to us and you can get notified whenever our new episodes come out every week. Yes. Um, and also, we haven't plugged this in a while, but don't forget about our merch store. We have oh, a yeah. store with like amazing stuff. And those of you who have purchased shirts and um, all the stuff and sent us pictures wearing them, thank you. We love yes. seeing you guys wearing our merch, like sharing the podcast, like out in the world. Um, we've I, got, um, we do still have our old logo on there, just so y'all know. That stuff yes. is still available in the merch store. So definitely go and snag it. Don't know how long it's going to be available. So um, be sure to go check it out. Um, but yeah, no, this weekend, I guess yesterday, I was at home wearing my blood and wine shirt because it's also like one of my comfy, just like wear all the time shirts. Oh yeah, totally same. And uh, the grocery delivery guy came because I get my groceries delivered because I'm a bougie Upper East Side, New York. Um, um, <laughs> hey, I just, not. Got, I just participated in prime now for the first time yesterday and i was texting some friends and i was like guys can i order wine on prime now and they were like yes and i was like oh fuck i'm sold sold See, i am never at my closest to my tipping point of just falling into a rage cyclone uh than i am when i'm grocery store shopping <laughs> and uh, i swear i walk in and everyone's like tyler just walked in let's make his life miserable quickly unleash the like (laughs) herd of seven-year-olds who are gonna like (laughs) jump in front of his cart and lie on the floor (laughs) and the parents aren't gonna like say anything and i can't really go around them and i'm like excuse me (laughs) and it's like a six-year-old so they're not they're they're busy and playing and so i'm like i could run them over (laughs) i could do it i have dog food in my cart it might like hurt them so i don't but like and that's why but because I, I get if i am ever arrested it will be outside of like an heb grocery store oh my i'm just God. saying but now i don't have to worry about that because delivery. grocery delivery um and it's worth the like two dollars to not um possibly go to jail but um <laughs> so groceries got delivered yesterday and i opened my door and i'm like oh thank you so much and he's and the delivery guy's like what's blood and wine and for some reason, I still don't have like it always catches me off guard when a stranger. Down. No, because I'm, I feel weird being like, "It's my podcast." <laughs> I get so that. So it's like, oh, it's a, a wine and true crime podcast um, that I do. And he was like, "Okay," and walked away. And I was like, oh, "Bye." <laughs> no, because also, what is blooded wine? The asshole snarky part of me was like, well, blood's in your veins and wine's in mine, so. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the other day, so as y'all know, I just started a new job. But the other day, we're all, like, sitting at the table eating lunch because we have, like, well, we're moving spaces. But at the moment, there's, like, kind of cubicles and, like, a table in the middle. And we um, were sitting at the table eating lunch. And we're talking about true crime. And people are, like, talking about all these different things and different cases. And this is we talked about the act and whatnot. And I didn't bring up the podcast. I mean, half the people at the table already no. knew I had it, but there were a couple of new people, and I'm like, shit, I should have just plugged myself. But I felt weird because I was at work. See, same. The also 
I think last week I was wearing my other blood and wine shirt and I was in the elevator and someone was like, oh, what's the blood and wine podcast? I've never heard of that one. And I'm in an elevator with like eight people and my office is big. So I think I know one person. Yeah. Um, So I was just like, oh, you know, it's wine and true crime podcast uh, that I do with my sister. And they were like, oh my God, really? You do a true crime podcast? And I'm like, you don't know me. (laughs) (laughs) You know. But I, I mean, no. So I, I don't know if any of y'all who were on the elevator at work are now listening to this episode. Hello. Um, <laughs> hi, guys. Or if you're a delivery driver for um, Instacart. I mean, hi. Hey. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, check out our merch store because then yes. maybe strangers will come up to you and ask what blood and wine is and you'll have a better uh, canned <laughs> elevator response yeah. than either me or Brittany. Yeah, you'll have better answers. apparently we're just terrible at this. 49 episodes in and we're like um i mean it's a it's kind of like a movie but you don't see anything um <laughs> you know have you heard uh, of have you heard of podcasts they're kind of cool now people like to listen to them and have you heard of the talking pictures <laughs> but anyway yeah check out that merch store there's also pillows which like i freaking love my pillows i've got them on my bed oh my god um the tote I have bag i get compliments displayed. on that tote bag all the time i need to get a tote bag because i feel like i don't know when the hell you but then i also i i mean like my laptop and stuff to work but then i'm like i'm just carrying a purse <laughs> like that's <laughs> and i on the other side i'm also like oh i really want to get like a nice over the shoulder leather briefcase kind of thing for my work stuff yeah. which is a little different than a blood wine tote bag no. a little bit different you know whatever but also um we have a fun little announcement that we talked yeah. about last week we were kind of floating around the idea of since now we're both in two different places do we want to um, each do a separate wine? Do we want to just try to figure out the logistics of having the same wine? And honestly, I, I think moving forward, we're going to announce two separate wines from yeah. here on. So y'all have more variety. Y'all get to hear about two different wines. So if you're, you know, listening to an episode and we do an, oh, I don't know, a Chardonnay. And you're like, ugh, I hate Chardonnays, but I love drinking the wine that's in the episode. Now you have two options. Yeah, and... And you can be like, ooh, good. I hate Chardonnays. They're trash. I'm going to drink what Tyler's drinking instead. Hypothetically, of course. Yeah, sure. Hypothetically speaking. But no, it's a fun opportunity. And we were like, hey, literally, there's nothing bad with giving more. So yeah, yeah. we're going to do me, two different give ones. Give me more. Also, you will further get to understand my wine tastes and Tyler's and how they differ and how they're similar. I guess that's true. Like You guys are going to be able because... to like, analyze us and our tastes. So have fun yeah. with that. Let us know Please what you hear. Please don't run like a Harvard study on us. Learn. Like, let us know what you Siblings and their different wine palettes. <laughs> Anyways. So with uh, that fun news, I think we've been talking long enough and I want to jump into the topic. Yes. I'm excited about this one. I really like what you picked. Uh, me too. So this topic, I was trying to think of one. You texted me and were like, oh, hey, you're going to ever tell me a topic so I can research? And I was <laughs> like, oh, okay, well, I'm looking. And I was thinking about it and I was like, what is is maybe not necessarily a case type we've never done, but an idea. And really what popped in my mind was like the idea of the horror movie type yeah, of true crime. The someone breaking into your home and kidnapping your family. And you see in a bunch of movies that, yeah, um, you do. that when a stranger calls with, um, with Camilla Bell, 
back in like 2005. It's really good. She's done nothing since, bless her heart. <laughs> um, I mean, there's the new movie Us by Jordan Peele, which I want to see. Oh, so I really want to see that one too. Um, but it's something that is like pervasive and an innate fear in all of us. Of your course. home, your sanctuary being your safe place invaded. Yeah. Because not all of us have panic rooms. If you do, you a rich bitch and I'm jealous. But not, not all of us have panic rooms, but our homes are our panic rooms. Yeah. And so that, like, that safety being violated, being invaded, I think is terrifying. It is. And so that's why the topic for this week is home invasion murders. And um, I found some facts on home invasions and burglaries in general yeah then i wanted to share that are kind of horrifying i prepared for the worst so based on a report by the university of north carolina about 60 percent of convicted burglars stated that the presence of a security system influenced their decision on targeting a home which i mean makes sense it does make sense if you see a home that's like hey alarms and shit will go off if you break in here and another one that isn't you're going to be like, oh, well, this one. So security systems or even those fake ass, like, you can get it, one of those little, like, yard signs yeah. or stickers. Like, like this signs. home is protected by whatever for, like, two bucks on Amazon and just make it look like you have a security system. Yeah. Just saying. Also, contrary to popular belief, most home burglaries take place during the daylight hours and not at night. Well, because people aren't and home during the day. Yeah, like people are at they're... work or school, mm-hmm. and the burglar's not necessarily going to get noticed. Side note, there is a book that I read in, like, the third grade that I just got a flashback to that is about this, like, I don't know, she's, like, 10 or something. And I don't know if she's homesick or something. I don't know. She goes home for some reason, or she's at home, and there are these burglars breaking into her house, and she gets kidnapped by them oh, and thrown wow. into, like, the moving van. Also, her, like, nosy-ass old lady neighbor gets kidnapped with them. And then she winds up saving them because, like, she had a bottle of super glue in her backpack. And when they open the doors to, like, throw them off a cliff. Like, it was kind of dark for a third grade me to read. Yeah. Uh, But she, like, squirted super glue in their eyes. And I was like, fuck. Um, Anyway, it's called Hostage. It's a great book for young adults, maybe a little older in third grade. But um, (laughs) yeah, so I thought of that because that burglary home invasion happened during the day. Yeah. Um, And the last fact, which is the one that kind of leads into the murder part of ours, is that according to a crime victimization survey that was conducted by the U.S. Department of Justice, a household member is present during approximately 28% of burglaries. Oh, God. And 7% of those victims experienced uh, some type of violent crime, which the idea of coming home and finding your shit stolen or just that someone's been in your house is horrifying. Yes. Being at home and having someone come in is probably, like, the most horrifying thing it is. I can think of. And we've talked about the last place that Brittany and I lived in, but there was one time in particular that I was lying in bed. It was like... I only laugh because I feel like I remember this, and it was... Yeah, sorry. Continue. Continue. Well, I might not be uh, thinking of the same one you're thinking okay. of. Okay. Um, but I'm lying in bed. It's like 1 a.m., I'm either asleep or, like, just almost asleep, and I hear this man's voice in my living room, and I... (laughs) This is not the one I was thinking of. 
yeah, my eyes, you know, open up and I'm like laying in bed and I can hear just this man talking and I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> oh my fucking god. And so I'm like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> And so I throw on my robe and I like walk in. Yeah. Um, And I'm just like, what the fuck do I do? Like, do I even shout like, hello? Yeah. So I like turn my light on. So I don't know. And I walk out and I don't see anyone. What had happened was my cat, Sebastian, had walked across (laughs) my keyboard and I had been editing that night. So that man's voice was my voice. <laughs> and I was just, it was just an episode of Blood and Wine playing, but it was at a low enough volume from my bedroom. I just hear him terrified. Yeah. The other yes. time, I think I've talked about it on the episode, how I hear this crash in the middle of the night. Oh, yeah. And is this not the one you were thinking no, of? No, no, but tell this one and then I'll tell the one I was thinking of. Okay. I think I've mentioned this story, but it's been like 20 or 30 episodes, so I'll tell you all again. I'm at home, you know, doing my thing, um, and I hear this crash, like, of glass shattering <laughs> in my living room. I'm, again, also in bed, and it, it sounds like a brick was thrown through my window, or or someone yeah. broke my window, something. I was fucking terrified. So I sprint out. I'm also, Brittany's not home this weekend. And I'm watching Charlie. So I have both dogs. My cat, who is new at this point. He's a new member of the family. Anyway, I run out to, like, see what's going on. And I step on broken glass. Just, like, flat-footed. Just, boom. On broken glass. What had happened was my cat had just knocked over wine glasses that shattered and so i'm like adrenaline's pumping in pain (laughs) bleeding still like terrified i know no one's breaking in but still terrified and then the dogs are just you know come trotting out of my bedroom like la 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 and i just look at them probably summoning like the demon that's always been inside me and i'm just like get back in the room and they both look at me and then just turn around and just trot back in. They didn't run. They didn't, like, come to me. They were just, like, noped out of the situation. And, um, yeah, that was the day I had to uh, <laughs> naked pick glass out of my foot and sleep up, sweep up broken glass Oh my god! Um, in the middle of the night. Oh, my God. Yeah, I remember you telling me about that. That one was, oh, the demon voice. I can, so what's funny is I, like, I'm imagining all of this happening and just like the look on the dog's faces and they're like, oh God. No. (laughs) No. The one I was actually thinking of was I feel like there was a time that you, that like someone tried to open your front door when we were sitting in the living room. Or was that at my apartment? I think that was at your apartment. Because we were just like sitting there and like someone tried to open the door and we're both just like, I think they quickly realized they had the wrong apartment, but it was just like, what the fuck? Yeah. And like, no, it had to be is... yours because I, that was before I started locking my door. That's what I was going to say. So I always lock my door. Always. I always have. I am not comfortable not having it locked. And it's just that if someone really wanted to come in, obviously they could. But it's just that little piece of security that I'm like, if I, yeah. even though I can see the fucking door, I'm just like, no, I live in an apartment complex. Yeah. Now, at least the, the inside or like my front door is inside thank god but when it was exterior especially i'm like no literally anyone can fucking walk up and open open my door and walk in like i'm locking the fucking door um, but yeah so but terrifying yeah topic. anyway home invasions terrifying and 
you can I think y'all get the vibe more and more as we talk about our old apartment, these stories and stuff. You know, it was the kind of place that I wouldn't be surprised if my neighbor's house got burglarized. No. Granted, burglaries and home invasions happen everywhere in any neighborhood. They do. Like regardless of safety and whatever, but still. Uh so anyway, yes, that is our topic. It is home invasion murders. Yeah, um, well, with that, I definitely need some wine because, yeah, there's definitely that, like, terror that's going to be in the back of my head throughout this whole thing. So... Oh, Sam. Okay, I'm going to talk about my wine now. I am kind of cheating, but now that we're doing two wines, it's not really cheating, but I'm doing another cab. It's cheating. <laughs> I'm doing another Cheater. cab. Um, you guys know how much I love cabs, and I found this one... And, like, it just called to me and I had to get it. It's got, like, this beautiful matte black label with white um, font. But it's the Chateau Sovereign. It's a 2016 California cab. And it was only, like, $9 a bottle. And it's just, it's so pretty. I'm showing Tyler on the video. I've definitely I've seen that one before. And I like the label. It's very simple, very modern. Yeah, yeah. Very, like, brute- yeah, it's one of those very simple labels that I was like, I've got to I've got to get this one. So, Chateau Sevron, um it's been known for their cabs since 1944, and their story does begin in 1944 when they were established when J Leland Stewart, also known as Lee, harvested his first crop of grapes from Howell Mountain Vineyard in Napa Valley. And in the next years that followed, Lee used innovation, meticulous standards, and his natural gift for winemaking to establish Sovereign as one of the great California wineries. Um, Hmm. He was among one of the first people in California to concentrate on single varietal estate wines introducing Pinot Syrah as a varietal and taking a page from the French by insisting that Chardonnay should be fermented in an oak barrel instead of a stainless steel barrel. And so Mm -hmm. that's one thing like we've talked about before with Chardonnay that depending on the fermentation process, if you did an oak barrel versus a steel barrel, it drastically changes that flavor. Oh, yeah. It goes from being like a Pinot Noir or no, Pinot Grigio. <laughs> it never tastes type, like a Pinot like, Noir. But a Pinot Grigio type fruity to like buttery, like a buttery, still a white wine, but it loses that crisp and exchanges it for like the heavy tannins and yeah. um, it's heavier like on your tongue oils and, and you can feel it. So that's why, uh, you know. A lot of red wine drinkers like an oaked Chardonnay because it does have more, at least in my opinion, it has more characteristics with red wines than it does other yeah. white wines because it's not that crisp, fruity green apple. Which is weird that I don't like oaky Chardonnay, but I love a very oaky cab or a zen you do. or a very deep oaky red, but a shard. Oof. Well, so by like the late 60s and early 70s, um, Lee's Cabernet Sauvignon helped establish Napa Valley as the cradle for the varietal outside of France. So mm. supposedly this cab is supposed to be very, very similar to a lot of the French wines. And y'all know how much I love my French wines. Um, so I'm really excited to try it. It's a deep okay. ruby purple color. Um, it has vivid aromas of roasted vanilla, mocha, and baking spices with layers of blackberry and ripe cherry flavors. It's a very balanced fruit, acidity, and round tannins that have a very juicy, lingering finish. And literally, I'm so excited to try this wine. Yes. So um, I'm going to start getting mine open. What wine did you pick for this episode? So the wine that I chose 
is the Le Volet 2017 Pinot Noir. It's Ooh. a French Pinot Noir. Wait, I don't know if I've ever and had a French Pinot Noir. So I don't think I have either. I don't know um, if I knew that. They I don't know. Had I Pinot saw it Noir. and I was like, "Ooh, that's interesting." Because I usually associate Pinot Noirs with like Italy. Italy, right? I don't, I don't know. know where the fuck Pinot Noir comes from. I mean, I don't associate them with France. No, I don't either. I definitely don't. But um, so these grapes are sourced from the wild and rugged landscape of the Bécaterre, which I can't do French accent. It comes out Spanish. Deal with it. It's true. Also, um, show me your bottle. And... What does it look like? Oh, right, 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 right. It looks like this. Oh my God, that's pretty. Where did you get this one? I got it from the same grocery store that I got my last one. I think I want to try all of the like affordable bottles there. Yeah. And this is the marketplace um, by your apartment, right? Yeah. Um, and it was like, Ooh. I think this one was $11 there. So you could probably find it most places probably around the $8 range. Yeah. Um, but it grows in this rugged area that surrounds the towns of Carcassonne and Limoux in southern France on the in the foothills of the Pyrenees Mountains. Yeah. And one of the great advantages of growing in that region is that it benefits from the geographic and climatic conditions from the warm Mediterranean sunshine, but also the cool like mountain air from the high altitude and the cooler nights. Mm-hmm. So it gives it a much longer, slower ripening yeah. for the grapes. And it just apparently makes fucking great wines that are intense, complex, and finesse. Um, I really want to try this wine. I'm going to start... You know, I just realized that something that, like, our listeners are going to be looking for our wines, and we're going to be looking for each other's. <laughs> it's true. So the wine is a very darkly stained red with upfront aromas of freshly picked raspberries and an underlying savory leasiness, which I don't know what that means. Fleshy red fruits and jam continue on the palate, and they're met with structured tannins and acid, which sounds like a bomb-ass Pinot Noir. So I'm going to open mine. It does. It's a... Twist off. It's a cap. Yep. You know, we really need to, like, keep our corks and our caps. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that's pretty. So mine is definitely... Look how purple mine is. Oh. Deep purple. Yours is, like, this kind of ruby garnet color. Yeah. It actually really reminds me of a garnet. Yeah, it does. Okay. Well, let's do our fake cheers with ourselves, the sad cheers. All right. And cheers. Okay, I'm going to give this one a try. Vamanos. Oh, my God. Yep. So, mine is Mm. very, very characteristic of a cab. Um, I literally think I said that exact same thing in the last episode, but it's the vanilla. Like, this roasted vanilla, like, soft, marshmallow-y, marshmallow-y without the sweetness. I don't know. It's, like, it's really good. It's nice and smooth. Uh, The tannins aren't too heavy. What What do you think about yours? So mine is definitely not what I was expecting from a Pinot Noir, because again, most Pinot Noirs, I expect to be very fruity. Yeah. And this one very much has that heavy tannic structure. Yes. And I know the area, so I was reading on the back, and the soil it's grown in is clay and limestone. Oh. And it very much has that limestone, like, alkalinity 
that was in the um not v for vendetta is the movie that's What's the that movie wine? it was valley mills it was their bedrock. valley mills yeah yes. their bedrock it had that like heavy limestone alkaline taste and that something similar is coming through here yeah so it's a much more complex pinot noir because i feel like most pinot noirs they're pretty straightforward because they're lighter yeah. they're like kind of one note and it's still good yeah but it's like a one note flavor and this one is much deeper I'm a fan. Well, see... It definitely tastes more like like a heavier, maybe more of like a table wine yeah. than a Pinot Noir. Yeah. But... Well, and so that's one thing I really like about French wines is that they're not as fruity. It has more earth flavors. Mm-hmm. And I, like, as my palate starts to, I guess, grow, expand, change, more so change, I like less fruity wines and more of this, like, earthy. But, you know, I was just thinking, remember when we did that Merlot and it was really good? We need to do more Merlots because I think there are Merlots out there that would surprise me. And I'm always like, mm-hmm. like, the way you steer away from chardonnay i steer away from merlot and well pinot grigio except for that one episode when i actually picked a pinot grigio which was very rare yeah all right well we have both of our wines and um i'm excited about drinking this bottle i know you're excited about yours i think you go first this week so i do my story is my story my case is the murder of the Goldmark family. Oh. And the main source I used was the Seattle Metropolitan Magazine, or Seattle Met. Mm -hmm. They had a story, um, like one of the featured stories. It's a monthly magazine for the city of Seattle, like one of those, I don't know, city magazines that cities do. And they had like a, I don't know, like a 10-page article that um, is titled A Rumor in Madrona. And written by James Ross Gardner. And this was published in the November 2018 issue. Oh, And this this is is... where the vast majority of mine... My case is not recent. Oh, okay, Um, okay. Just this article. uh, Yeah, this article was... And some of the stuff that it draws on and links to is very interesting. And I don't know if I have anywhere specifically in my story that I'll mention the connection, but if you remind me at the end, I will talk about it and go into it. A connection? Um, Am I going to know what connection? No, but like why this article was written when it was. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. Kind of thing. Um, The other two sources I used were the Washington Post, and I only used one line from the Wikipedia article, but also Wikipedia. (laughs) So... Before I go into my case, um, there is this place in Seattle that I want to talk about. So Madrona is this n- rich neighborhood in Seattle. Older houses that are very, very big, very nice. And there's this one part of it where Madrona Drive meets Lake Washington Boulevard. And it's this curve on almost a cliff. And the view is the eastern side of Seattle, oh, Lake wow. Washington, and then on clear days, you can see Mount Rainier, and you can also see, like, the foothills, the Cascades, Bellevue across the water. It's absolutely Sounds gorgeous. Gorgeous. It was one of my favorite views in Seattle, and it was actually a road I would take often when I lived in Capitol Hill. And on this curve, this, like, scenic curve, there's a plaque of a family of four. Oh. That the curve and the overlook is actually in memory of, and that is the Goldmark family. Okay. So Charles Goldmark was 40, who was 41, was a successful civil litigation lawyer, and he was a progressive political 
uh, figure. His dad had been a state representative, and he was, like, he himself wasn't directly involved in politics, but had quite a bit of influence and was open with his politicalness. His wife, Annie Goldmark, was 43. She was French and Swedish, and she was a translator. And they had two sons, Derek, who is 12, and Colin, who is 10, who attended the very prestigious Bush School in Seattle. Okay. So at around 7.30 p.m. on Christmas Eve, 1985... Oh, God, a uh, Christmas one. Some friends and guests arrived at the Goldmark home, and they knocked on the door, and they were here because of what had become a holiday tradition at the Goldmark house. They always had a Swedish Christmas Eve dinner with friends and a gift exchange. Yeah. So their friends are here, shown up at the door, they ring the doorbell, and there's no answer. The lights are all turned off, and that's weird because, you know, the Goldmarks are all expecting them to be there. So they're kind of concerned, and they summoned Jeff Haley, who was a close family friend and a neighbor who had a key to the house. Um, So Haley enters, and he can hear this groan coming from the second floor. They could kind of hear it outside, but once they were in the house, they could really hear it. Yeah. So he climbs the stairs, steps into the master bedroom, and is just greeted with a bloodbath. Oh, God. He discovered Charles laying there on the beige carpet, his hands bound behind him in handcuffs, and blood pouring from his head. Annie, his wife, was also bound with head cuffs, and she was bleeding from her head and chest after being stabbed through the heart. <gasps> And just a couple feet away, the boys, Derek and Colin, were also there, bleeding, maimed with head injuries. Oh my god, so they're all in the master bedroom. Yeah. So Annie was pronounced dead at the scene. Uh, Colin, one of the sons, died four days later. Charles was unconscious and eventually died after 16 days in the hospital. And it took Derek 37 days before he finally passed away. So... The entire family was killed. Wow. And And violently. Yeah. And since news travels slowly on Christmas Day, most people heard the first reports about this on the radio, um, you know, in between Christmas carols and hymns. Oh, jeez. Because it's Christmas Day when people are hearing about this. And at the Harborview Hospital, where um, the Goldmarks are... Um, Their friends and relatives are there with their long vigil, and they're just broken. They knew immediately that this wasn't some random killing. It was this multi-generational American family that was bludgeoned to death, and the causes of all of this spanned over a half century prior. Whoa. Whoa. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of setup to my case. So my case really starts about 40 years earlier in Okanagan County in rural northern central Washington state. Okay. And this was where John and Sally Goldmark were going to make a name for themselves. And it was not, not your expected place for them to do so. What do you mean? Um, because he is this Harvard-educated lawyer and former Navy officer from New York State. His great-uncle is this Supreme Court justice. And she was this New Deal employee from Brooklyn. 
Yeah. They had met in D.C. and gotten married in 1942. And after the birth of Charles, their first son, John did a military tour disarming bombs in the South Pacific. And when he returned, the family moved out west to follow their dream of living off the land. So they went from very city people. Yeah. And very influential people to this very rural county in Washington. By the early 60s, they had a 500-acre wheat and cattle ranch that was 25 miles from the nearest town and 250 miles north of Seattle. And John had become this very revered public servant, and he had won a seat as a state representative in Olympia in 1956. And then he won a second term, and then a third term. And he did this as a Democrat in a very Republican county. Yeah. And right now he is poised to win his fourth term as a state representative. Dang. The Goldmarks also had two very intelligent teenage son, Charles Goldmark, um, who went by Chuck, and his younger brother, Peter. In 1962, Charles was a freshman at Reed College in Portland, and his dad is up for re-election. Mm-hmm. But things were different this time around. Two local papers ran pieces claiming that this three-term state representative and chairman of the Ways and Means Committee was actually a communist sympathizer. And these papers used tactics that were really similar to the McCarthyism of the 50s, where if y'all don't know what McCarthyism, basically it was the Red Scare. Everyone was accusing everyone and being accused of being communists, being Soviet sympathizers or Soviet spies. Oh. A lot of this shit went on in Hollywood, um, and it was, like, terrifying. So is this where, like, the joke comes out where it's just like, oh, so-and-so's totally a communist? Like, it stems from this? Yeah. But back then, it it was something that, like, if you were thought to be a communist, you could be thrown in jail. Yeah. And disappeared. And so huge influential people like Ronald Reagan was caught up in this. He uh, married Nancy. I believe she had been accused of being a communist. And that's how she met Ronald Reagan, her future husband, because he was like head of the Screen Actors Guild, because he's an actor at this time. And she was like, oh my god, can you get my name off this fucking list? I'm not a communist. And that was how they met, started dating and things like that. But I'm like, the the Red Scare and the McCarthyism of the 50s involved fucking everyone. You know, I really need to, like, up my education on Ronald Reagan, because, like, I know he was an actor, but that's that's very much the extent of, like, as far as his personal life and that kind of knowledge. Like, I don't know a lot about him and about how he came to be in politics and, like, mm-hmm. how that became the trajectory of his life. And I think, to be completely honest, I've become a little bit more interested in it now with Trump as president, where it's just, like, again, this person that you're like, wait, what the fuck? Why are you our president? And mm-hmm. I forget that that has happened before. You know, that that yeah. happened with Reagan because he was an actor. And, you know, mm-hmm. in our lifetime, Arnold Schwarzenegger has become governor of California, and that again, was this moment of like, okay, here's an actor, like, getting super political. Yeah. But, um... And, um, it's interesting, because I've looked... There's a a Drunk History video 
um, on the Reagans and their rise to power. And I didn't realize how influential Nancy Reagan was. Oh, I know. Because when she met Ronald Reagan, he was a Democrat. He was pretty liberal leaning. And through her influence, through moving into politics and seeing that, like, you know, I can get more voters, more sway if I focus on these issues and kind of change my opinions on these issues to more a conservative side and just be able to take power and become someone who's viewed as like the bastion of the Republican Party. Yeah. The two people of the Republican Party that I think people will always gloat about are like Lincoln and Reagan in the same way that for yep. the Democrats, it's FDR and uh, Kennedy. Kennedy and Obama. But yeah, anyway, so his dad is being uh, accused of being this communist and communist sympathizer. Yeah. And according to a column that was penned by the Tonisket Tribune editor Ashley Holden, John Goldmark was complicit in a monstrous conspiracy to remake America into a totalitarian state which would throttle freedom and crush individual initiative. So through newsletters and newspaper articles, Holden and his allies tried to imply this pattern of Soviet inclinations. They pointed out that his son Charles attended the very liberal Reed College, which had recently invited a Communist Party secretary to speak. Mm -hmm. And then even more persuasive that his wife Sally had once been on the party's membership roster, that she had been in the Communist Party, which was true. Because during the Great Depression, Sally had to drop out of medical school because her family couldn't afford it. And she joined the Communist Party because she agreed with its platform that was dedicated to, like, helping those in need. She was also really young and idealistic and, like, 20. Right. So when she met her husband, John, who was not a fan of communism, she left the group. But now, which shows that you know, she wasn't like this later. like real supporter. It was just what she was no. doing. She was a college student. Yeah, but Holden and company exploited this tiny, tiny grain of truth to sow doubt in the minds of the Okanagan County voters, and John wound up losing by a landslide oh. and didn't even earn his own party's nomination. Dang. So he didn't even make it to the actual, like, election election. And that was after, like, four terms. Yeah, this was going to be his fourth Oh, this term. was going to be his fourth. Wow. The Goldmarks did not let this go. They had a reputation to protect, and they had their good name to clear. They got an attorney, and they filed a libel lawsuit against Holden and his group. Mm-hmm. And this months-long trial became national news. And to many, it felt like this relitigation of the infamous House Un-American Activities Committee hearings and others that were like it. Mm-hmm. Ones that happened where people were being accused and convicted of being communist with no evidence. Yeah. And this was someone fighting back, being like, fuck no, I'm not a communist. Like, no, this is libel. This is ruining my political career and I'm not going to stand for it. Yeah. Witnesses from Hollywood who had been under Senator McCarthy's microscope during the McCarthyism era testified on the Goldmark's behalf, and so did their son, Charles, who took the stand to inform the jury that his school was not this bastion of Soviet ideals, that it's just a school. Yeah, like it, it's just it was just college. College in the 60s. Just college, just going to school. 
The defendants, on the other hand, exploited this trial as a new avenue to slime John and Sally and inferred that their entire marriage was this sham and just another communist plot. Wow. The Goldmarks wound up prevailing, and the judge awarded $40,000 in damages. But unfortunately, all of these lies, even after they were exposed to be lies, didn't go away. Yeah. They didn't, they just wouldn't die. Yeah. And this rumor stayed alive as just a whisper through on the years and decades until in 1985, when it reached the wrong person at exactly the wrong time. Oh, shit. So this is um, actually going to be a great caveat to why this article was written in 2018. And because it was drawing a parallels between this and the Pizzagate, which to me is like a fucking mad lib of a scandal that wasn't real. Pizzagate? Because do you... No. So it was during the... Um, for those of y'all that don't know, it was during or after... I, I remember it was during or after the 2016 election, but there was this scandal and rumor that like... Hillary Clinton was involved in a like this sex trafficking ring oh, that was under yes. the guise of like a pizza restaurant in Kentucky. Okay. And I'm like that doesn't fucking make sense. I like, didn't the- hear about I heard about the supposed like sex ring thing but not the pizza place in Kentucky. I didn't yeah, hear that part. Like, yeah, like that's why it's called it's known as Pizzagate because it like, that was apparently the front of it. And none of it was real. No. But there were people who latched on to this idea and were, like, calling death threats against Hillary Clinton. Yeah. That cemented this in their minds that, like, oh, my God, she is a monster is going to steal our children and sell them into sex slavery at a pizza place in Kentucky, I guess. And, like, to me, it it's like a Mad Lib scandal. It's like, person, Hillary Clinton, scandal, sex trafficking, place... And pizza place in Kentucky. Make it a scandal. And I'm like, what? Yep. I totally see this mad limb. That is a... Did you come up with that? Yeah. Man, that was smart. <laughs> but I feel like you could do that with any fucking conspiracy. I could be like, oh, did you hear that George W. Bush was involved in arms trafficking using a 7-Eleven in northern Wisconsin? What? Yeah, I see what you're saying. What? You just fill in the blanks, and it is whatever you want it to be. Yeah, so that they drew a lot of parallels between this case and that one, because this is like the worst case scenario of just people fucking making this shit up. They're like, ooh, let's smear this person who is a political opponent and take it too far. And not realizing that, yeah, they're fully aware they're making this shit up, but there are people who believe it. And people who believe it to a point where they're not just going to stop at, oh, I'm going to vote for the other person. That they're like, I need to do something about this. There are people who will like, believe you're anything. fucking lying. There are. And there are also people who will delude themselves into committing murder for these lies and stuff. And I'm like, you are like the person who created these lies and stuff. You're a horrible person. Kind of like, um, this article compared Holden to Alex Jones, who, if y'all don't know who he is, he's just awful. He's this, uh, conservative conspiracy theory radio podcast, so I don't know what the fuck he does. He talks on the radio. Yeah. Um, but he's one of those people that talks about that, like, the Sandy Hook shooting was faked, 
What the fuck? um, Yeah, like that was faked so that Obama could get more, like, gun control. And that pesticides are turning... One of his big things that it's like a meme now is that the pesticides in the water are turning frogs gay. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. It's one of those... Some of these things are funny... But just looking more into them, I'm like, this is horrible and disgusting. Because and, people are believing it. Oh, yeah. Um. So anyway, very similar to that. I'm going to jump back into yeah, um, yeah, jump back in. my case, back to the 80s. So this person who this rumor got to at the wrong time was David Rice. David Rice was someone who believed that 10,000 Korean troops lurked just over the Canadian border, and somewhere between 20,000 and 40,000 South American troops were waiting just on the other side of the Mexican border, and they were all waiting for word from the Jewish-controlled Federal Reserve to invade and ultimately conquer the United States. That is what this guy believes. So he's got a lot of fantasies going on there. Yeah. He believed that the federal government needed these foreign troops because it couldn't count on its own military to fire bullets at U.S. citizens and believed that there was a definite plan to turn this world into a one-world communist government. Okay. But these delusions were not the delusions of just one mad person. These were assertions that were made from someone that Rice really admired and whose writings he read with this, like, religious fervor. And that was retired U.S. Army Colonel Gordon Jack Moore. And this self-proclaimed national military commander of the Christian Patriots Defense League, Moore, he used his credentials as a veteran of World War II and Korea to tour the country, and he gave speeches about the threat of communism and spread his ideas in articles that appeared in, the, in very right-wing newsletters. And among some of his assertions, and he's super disgustingly racist, anti, an anti-Semite fucking Nazi, mm-hmm. and I, which horribly is more relevant now. Um, but some of his assertions were that international Jewish bankers dictated U.S. foreign policy, that in the 1970s, a 27-ship Russian convoy landed off the coast of Baja, California, and, you know, got tanks and thousands of troops that are all poised to invade California, Arizona, and Texas, and that another invading army, this time of Chinese troops, was lying in wait in British Columbia, and that there's this coming war, and that all able men must be ready to defeat the communists and the globalists plot to undo the u.s and this was in the 80s that he's like imagining all of this yeah Yeah. and this guy is the guy who's saying all of this preaching this is this former u.s military colonel oh who fought for world war ii and yeah this isn't uh david rice this is the guy who's like inspiring him yeah so the guy who's saying all of this, oh. people are listening because he was a colonel in the U.S. Army yeah. who fought in World War II and he fought in I Korea. I mean, I get that. Of course people are listening. And he's saying all this shit. And when people would ask, like, where'd you get this information? He'd answer vaguely that it came from a variety of sources, you know, tips and letters and telephone calls. And because his wartime experience, he could discern fact from fiction from these tipsters. Oh, my God. And... David Rice was such a fan of Jack Moore that after reading one of his articles, he phoned Moore to discuss it. And it seemed to Rice that 
in these words and these stories that Moore would tell that he finally found a purpose. And it had been a long time since he'd had any purpose. So he latched onto this. Oh my God. So a little bit of background. I'm having on like, Rice. I'm having like Timothy McVeigh vibes. Oh, uh, very much going so. Going on right now. Very much so. Jeez. Um, so David Rice had a very rough life. It was littered with bullying, family issues, and suicide attempts. Mm. He dropped out of school in the 10th grade and joined the Navy, but he was discharged before he even finished boot camp. And nothing for him seemed to work out. He married and had a son, and then his wife left him. He got a job as a welder, and then everything ended when he was laid off. Things never seemed to go right for him. And he wound up landing in Seattle at around 1982, where he lived in a car or in homeless shelters, before he met Ann Davis. The two of them began this relationship, and he moved into her apartment. Mm -hmm. She introduced him to the Duck Club, which was this extremist, anti-Jewish, and anti-communist study group that had a chapter in Seattle. Jeez. And its local president, Homer Brand was this just viciously anti-government former Boeing employee that she also introduced him to. Does it ever terrify you to think that there are probably most definitely groups like this that exist right now? Mm -hmm. Like, that scares me to think that there are people who are meeting in, like, chapters and groups to discuss things that are so not true and so not real. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are... And I'm not sitting here saying, like, I know... For a fact, what's real and what's not with what's going on. But to mm-hmm. join a group? I don't know. Well, and these are groups that there are ones right now out there that are planning terrorist attacks or planning violence yeah. and stuff. Oh, yeah. And so while there is no um, excuse for, like, eliminating civil rights um, because something could happen, that shit's not okay. You know, if you have... A friend or a coworker who makes comments like, so-and-so should die, or, you know, me and my buddies are planning on killing so-and-so, maybe call the police. Not maybe, you know? definitely. I mean, yeah, d- definitely call, call the police. The police if, because... if that is something you are hearing anywhere at any point in time, literally call the police because what's the worst that can happen? Like, just do it. Yeah. Like, because that's one of those things You could where... save an innocent person's life. Yeah. You could also save this coworker, this friend, who might, you know, be very much in need of help. I feel like we as a society are overly cautious on um, stepping on toes and yeah. just, oh, oh, I overheard this thing, but, you know, I don't need to get in the middle of it. Like, you don't have to get in the middle of it to report it. Like, if there is yeah. something that is not sitting right with you... Make that known. See something, say something. No, it, I mean, seriously, that is one of my favorite phrases because it's so straightforward. Yeah. And it's literally, if you see something that you don't feel is right and you tr- it truly does not sit right with you, report it. Mm-hmm. Because the worst that can well, happen is nothing. And this um, sort of leads into something that I wanted to mention. Last week's episode, I think it was last week's episode, could have been the one before, we mentioned how we were wondering out loud if there were any cases that were just solved by armchair detectives. Oh, yeah. And there's a ton. Oh, yeah. Apparently, it's not super uncommon. Um, I can't remember specific ones, but I saw a, a list video on YouTube that was like, 10 crimes solved by the internet. Yeah, well, and like... Another thing I think, as a woman, oftentimes 
we can be worried to say something because we're going to be like seen as like this huge bitch. And I'm like, do it. Because so what? Be that bitch. If someone is going to call you a bitch for reporting something or for opening your mouth, then they're not someone you want to be friends with anyway. Yeah, fuck them. No. Because like there was one thing, um, and this is kind of related, but it's become one of my new favorite things. I saw it on like an artwork and then also it was um, originated from my favorite murder. But it's basically like you're not a bitch for not trusting someone you don't know. No, that's so fucking real. It's so real because we worry about being taken as a bitch or, you know, oh God, that that fucking person. But like, what in society is making it to where I should trust anyone that I don't know? Nothing. So it's like when you see things and you don't trust it, it doesn't feel right. Like, Mm -hmm. open your mouth. Like, be that bitch. It's fine. That's going to be my new hashtag. Be that bitch. Fuck yes. Yep. I will be that bitch too. Do it. Be that bitch. Be like, you know what, Brittany? Throw my wine at you through the iPad. No, I mean, don't be that kind of bitch. No. But, but you um, know what I'm because, yeah, if someone's, you know, what the fuck? Why aren't you? I just want to talk to you while you're walking to work. It's like, fuck you. I don't have to talk to you and I don't want to. Well, and there's fuck the off, other. Dude. But then if you say no, is he going to murder you? Well, and there's the other quote that is like, Georgia Hardstark, I fucking love this quote, but it's like, fuck politeness. And it's that whole, like, We all feel like we have to be polite, especially, again, this is as a woman, you have to be nice to people and you can't be rude. And, you know, even if you're uncomfortable, just be nice. It's like, no, fuck politeness. Well, you know what? I have literally never been told by a stranger ever. I don't necessarily have resting bitch face, but I have resting sad face. You do. But I've never been told by someone to smile. Oh, my God. I have and so many times. Like, oh, why don't you smile? You're prettier. It's like, fuck you. I'll smile dancing on your grave. Um, Whoa. Maybe that's a little far. <laughs> but maybe it's fucking not. Leave people alone. Literally. What you if know? you just don't fucking talk to strangers that don't want to be bothered? You know, one thing that I heard in college that has always stuck with me. So I took French in college. Surprise, surprise. And my teacher was actually a grad student from France. So she's straight up French, grew up there. And one thing she just made, like, it was a random comment. She was like, Americans feel the need to smile whenever they walk by someone. Like, you just smile. And she's like, we don't Mm -hmm. do that in France because we don't know that person. Why are we smiling? There's no reason for it. And it's not, it's not rude. It's just not expected. And that, I think that's one of the reasons a lot of Americans think the French are rude. But it's like, I so fall in line with that because I'm like, why should I have to smile at someone I don't know just because I'm walking by them? No, like, you it's don't not rude. Anyone, anything. You don't, and it's not rude to not show someone that you don't know any type of acknowledgement. Like, I, yeah. I'm not trying to sound like this like cold-hearted bitch, but it's like, who cares? You know how many people? But we even walk still, by? it's kind of like, well, like how you were saying earlier, you shouldn't feel bad about it, and even still saying this, you're like having to justify it exactly and that's fucked up that you have i totally agree it's so fucked up because i've always you know for the last 10 years or so i've lived in larger cities i walk by people all the time and 80 percent of those people are ones i don't know the ones i do know are like in the office when i'm walking down the hallway yes i'll acknowledge someone there because it's at work i know this person i'm not going to ignore people i know but when i'm out on the street like walking to go grab lunch i don't need to like 
worry about having to be polite and smile at people. And anyway, we've gone on a really big tangent, but I'm just basically saying like, don't worry about being nice to people. And also, if you see something that makes you uncomfortable, let it be known. Because in most situations that are not movie situations, nothing is going to happen to you for reporting something. Yeah, no. Um, And one thing I want to end this conversation on I wanted to say it in our conversation, but nowhere would fit. But um, is a quote that I really like. And I don't know if it's, or I think it's usually used like when talking about going on a blind date or meeting someone for the first time, whatever. Yeah. Men are worried that women will laugh at them and women are worried that men will kill them. Uh, Yes, I've heard that. And it is so real that it is so scary. Yeah. The things, and, and we've talked about this multiple times, the things that men have to worry about and the things that women have to worry about and how... You go outside at night and you don't have a thought about it. I go outside at night yeah. and I have so many thoughts about it. And it's that that mm-hmm. same sentiment of first date. Oh, my God. The guy's like, oh, my God, is she going to like me? Is she going to laugh at me? Is she going to think I'm stupid? And the girl's like, God, I hope he's not a rapist. I really hope he doesn't try yeah. to kill me. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that, you know, I've been in, like, groups of friends where two different women you know one of them was talking about going on a date or whatever and the one was like okay you know make sure to snap a picture with him uh turn on your location and share it with me so he could see it if you can take a picture of his license plate and just things like that yep. that are like checks normal because she was like yeah i know no i got it no problem and i'm like i would literally never think of any but because i'm not thinking sometimes i th- i feel like sometimes i exist in a weird gray area that's like maybe five percent closer to how women feel with that yes, stuff. Yes, I, I agree with that. definitely not anywhere closer at all, but a little bit removed from the guy person. Well, but you're I, a, then not really. But you're a gay man in Texas, and so there is a lot going against you as well. That's true. But even still, if I was going on a date with someone, I'm not going to think to, like, take a picture of their license plate or, like, make sure that a friend is also there at the bar that we're at or, what, you know, things like well, that. Well, and it's sad because, you know, the classic, like, oh, he's picking me up at home. No, you don't do that anymore. No. No. Until you know that person. Because then he knows where you exactly. live. You don't want anyone to know where you live. So it's not ever a, well, I'll come pick you up, which used to be this, like, super gentlemanly. And now, unfortunately, because of the way society has gone you you meet him there it's like yep i'll meet you there yeah you tell me where i'll be there i'm not fucking well, telling and, you where i live and i think it honestly is for the better because people being kidnapped raped and murdered by these dates picking them up happened more then yes like you know our the violent crime and murder rates and everything has gone down you know everyone talks about how in the 70s 80s you could leave your doors unlocked like, you knew your neighbors it was safe and i'm like <laughs> that lived in the 70s I know, i'm like that was the dangerous time yes. that was when people were murdered now you are more safe leaving your doors unlocked and doing but whatever you don't, don't do leave. it yeah no I, I don't anymore not after living at our last place yep. um i always have it locked anyway um we went on a very long tangent i'm hopping back yep. in so david rice meets this girlfriend annie or Anne. A-N-N-E, I think Anne. She introduced him to the Duck Club, which is just this group of terrible people who are anti-Jewish, anti-communist, very extremist. And in the meetings of the Duck Club, Homer Brand, who was the local president, uh, his girlfriend Ann Davis and others would talk about the Constitution, how the government is intruding into the lives of Americans, and just the different sorts of themes that Jack Moore 
had addressed in his different speeches and articles. Mm -hmm. So they were very much followers of his words and very much believed what he was saying that like the communists are going to invade and we need to be ready. Yeah. And all of this caught David Rice's imagination on fire. And he decided that he was going to be the soldier in the cause to defend America. But in this, who is the enemy? And at a Duck Club meeting, the John Goldmark family and its supposed communist ties came up because this is a meeting in Seattle. This is local Washington politics and stuff that happened a few decades ago. And Rice became obsessed with this. He pursued this lead and found articles in the library and this idea bloomed. But along the way, he got the father and son confused. So David Rice became obsessed with Charles Goldmark. Oh my god. Yeah. So John Goldmark was the dad who was the politician. Charles Goldmark, or Chuck, was the one who was just a lawyer, you know, had his family in Madrona, was not... I mean, they weren't communists in general, but... This is based on confusion of a lie. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So... David Rice knew he was going to the home of Charles Goldmark. He didn't accidentally have the wrong address of the son. He knew he was going after. And he had staked out this blue Tudor-style house twice that previous fall. He'd also showed up outside the offices of the Wilkshire Lewis Goldmark and Shore law firm to get a good look at Charles Goldmark. And again, what he didn't know is he had the wrong guy. He was going on this rumor that John Goldmark was this communist, poised to be the communist leader of America. And John Goldmark has been dead for six years. Yeah, he's not even alive anymore. And also wasn't a communist in general. Like it. Right. But Charles Goldmark is whom he pursued and who he believed to be the regional director of the American Communist Party. Jesus. A few days before Christmas, with his girlfriend out of town, David Rice tested the chloroform that he'd purchased at a pharmacy on himself. You can just get chloroform at a pharmacy? You could in the 80s. Okay, I'm like, holy shit. I feel like in the 80s, you could also get, like, cough syrup that was basically heroin. I don't know if that was the 30s or the 80s. Medicine's fucking crazy. I swear, in 20 years, like, my kids are going to be like, oh my god, you should just be able to buy ibuprofen? I know. Or something. Seriously, though. Or even, like, things like a NyQuil. Like, that could be considered a drug. Or it'll go the opposite way and people will be like, oh, let's decriminalize things. But I think it's so interesting to look back and be like, oh my god, you used to just give your child cocaine when they had a toothache. Mm -hmm. Which is weird. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) so he bought some chloroform at a pharmacy in First Hill, uh, which is, fun fact, it's the neighborhood in Seattle where all the... uh, hospitals are so it's also called pill hill okay i can see that and he tested his chloroform out it knocked him out for 20 minutes and so he was like perfect it's good to go and then he purchased a realistic looking toy pistol and two pairs of handcuffs oh my god he didn't even have a real gun no so his plan was to gain entry into the goldmark home take charles hostage and force him to give up the names of the other communist leaders So around 7 p.m. on Christmas Eve, he's standing there in front of the Goldmark house holding what looks like a holiday delivery, a white box. He's posing as a delivery guy on Christmas Eve. He rings the doorbell and the son, Colin, answered. And he's, you know, you know, is Charles Goldmark here? And so 
When Charles appears, Rice pulls out the toy gun from behind the box and guided Charles, Colin, and Derek upstairs into the master bedroom where the mom, Annie, had just gotten out of the shower and is like in her bathrobe. Mm. Charles asked if this intruder wanted money and gave him the $14 he had in the bedroom. And Rice also took a bank card from Charles's wallet and asked for the pin. Then he ordered all four of them onto the floor. He handcuffed Chuck and Annie's hands behind their backs. But that was when Charles told him at 7.10 that dinner guests were going to be there in 20 minutes. People are going to be here at oh 7.30. So, oh my god, could you imagine Rice, being in this situation and being like, FYI, people are coming, but also, why would you tell them that? I can see it I both think, ways. I can see, like, yeah. I've got to protect my friends who are coming, so I need to say something, but also well, that and maybe to, like, deter him, make him go away. Yeah. yeah, maybe the idea that he'll hear that and be like, oh, fuck, I'm getting out of here. So Rice now knows that he has to move quickly. He has 20 minutes. He poured some chloroform onto a rag and one by one (gasps) knocked all the family members out. And with guests that were showing up so soon, his plan is falling apart. There's not going to be time to extract this intel from Goldmark. And at this point, the entire family could identify him, including the children that he hadn't expected to be home. Oh my god. So he rushed downstairs to find a weapon And he settled on a clothing iron and one of Annie's kitchen knives and then went back up to the master bedroom. An iron? Yeah. So he began bludgeoning (gasps) all four of the gold marks with the iron. And with the kitchen knife, he stabbed at the cracks that he'd made in their skulls. (gasps) And then he stabbed Annie in the chest to finish the job. So police had him in custody two days later. An acquaintance had turned him in after finding this confession note that Rice had written. And in addition to the note, Rice also told Homer Brand, you know, the leader of the Duck Club, that he had just dumped the top communist. Despite attempts by his lawyers for an insanity plea, on June 6th of 1986, so just about six months after the killings, jurors found David Morse Rice guilty of aggravated murder in the killing of Charles and his family. And this murder was based on this generation-old political smear. Oh my god. murder happened because 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that newspaper person had a political agenda and wanted the other candidate to win. Wanted to get John Goldmark, you know, out of the running. 20 years later, that led to the death of Charles and his family. And this guy didn't even pick the right fucking person. The person he Mm-mm. wanted to kill was already dead. Yeah. And it's... Oh my god. Um, It's one of those that you could say, like, oh, this wouldn't happen today because, you know, with the internet, we can prove things one way or the other. And no. Because, like, you can't trust that that person's going to use the internet. You just can't. And, like, let's be real. We all have those older family members who will share something on Facebook that's like, President Obama seen eating child's face in Kenya. And people like, I knew it. I knew he did that. And he was probably in Kenya for his birthday. And even though it's like, that's literally not real. That's not real. Th- like these, that's made up. Th- this is fake news and stuff. But you have people that regardless of 
what they're told. And it's, you know, both ways. Well, and I feel like in the last couple of years, the phrase fake news has changed from something that you can tell is fake to things that are harder to know is fake. Well, it's, and it's also used the other way as things you don't want to agree with. Yes. And no, exactly. You You say like, oh, statistically it's safer now people are like that's fake news it doesn't feel safer and it's like that doesn't that doesn't mean it's that not. doesn't mean this is fake your feelings aren't backed like that's not mm-hmm. to me that's scary and it's it also become so easy to make things just believable enough you know i feel like right now there are things that i'm like i don't know same you know i have a couple trusted news sources but Things come out and it's like, I don't know. I know. I feel that way as well. Sometimes I'll read something and I'll, I'll be like, is that real? Is it not? How mm-hmm. do I make my decision of how I feel about this? Yeah. And, and, but, and I will say one thing at least that is, I think, in our benefit is that we have that thought process instead of automatically seeing something and believing it is truth. And that's yes. the thing like that I want to say about fake news and whatever is going on. Do your research and like really think about your gut and how you feel. And, you know, we can all be wrong. We can all be wrong and it happens. But just don't automatically take something as truth. Because like someone could literally show me the color red, like a nice maroon red. And then someone else could be like, no, that's blue. And this is why. These are the reasons. Mm-hmm. This is why that color is blue. This is why this is coming out. This is why that. And if you're just like, oh, okay, all right, the color I've always known as red is actually yeah. blue, and you just automatically accept that without doing your research because, hey, it turns out that person was colorblind. By the way, I don't know the science of colorblindness, so I don't know if that's actually yeah. a thing. Um, with red and blue, I but, think it's more no, so pink but and green. That's a fair but you get example. what I'm saying. So it's like that person who had all those facts and had all that knowledge, like to them, they were true and they had reasoning behind it. But the actual validity of it is not. And that's like a very oversimplified example. But I'm just saying. This is also a great plug. If y'all haven't read it, check out 1984 by George Orwell. Because, you know, sometimes that feels like it's happening right now. I have never... Because the whole like... Read that book. There's a... And I'm scared to read it right now because of how real I... So one of the big pieces of it, you know, the main character, his job is correcting the news in newspapers in books and things you know projections for the number of food rations you know is projected to go up you know then it actually comes out that it's down so his job is to go back and change the old news and be like no 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 we projected it would be up and it is because the previous number, you know, yeah, it said it was a hundred thousand, but now it's it was actually ten thousand, and now it's thirty thousand, so it's up, and it it just goes into all of the mental psyche because if you look back, you're like, oh yeah, everything they're telling us is true, and it's even his job to change these things and make these lies yeah. real. But he doesn't see it as that. He sees it as it's, he's just correcting mistakes that, oh, that wasn't supposed to be in the paper. And it's so ingrained. It's, that book's horrifying, but really good. Yeah. Um, but I'm almost done with my case. But so after this seven-day trial in the King County Superior Court, the jury took four hours to find Rice guilty in the fatal bludgeoning and stabbing on December 24th, 85, yeah. of Charles, Annie, Colin, and Derek. And he was sentenced to death. A decade later, 
his sentence was reduced to life in prison without the possibility of parole Mm -hmm. on the grounds of an incompetent defense. Oh. He had repeatedly displayed psychotic symptoms throughout his trial, but his attorney had failed to emphasize them in his defense. And in 1998, he pleaded guilty to the crimes in exchange for avoiding the death penalty. And so Rice is now 60 years old, or 61, depending on when his birthday is. And he is a full-time resident at the Coyote Ridge Corrections Center in Connell, Washington. And that is how one person's lie led to the home invasion and massacre of an entire family. That's horrifying. Yep. You know, and one thing that I've realized throughout, like, my research and then listening to your case, there's a lot more home invasion type murders that we've talked about without identifying them as home invasion. Oh, yeah. Because the Manson murders, that was a fucking home invasion. Oh, yeah. Granted, they weren't seeking to rob they were seeking to kill it was still home invasion well and that was kind of one of the things that i wanted to have this as the topic is that you know we've covered cases that would fit in this but we never covered them under the umbrella of home invasion and to me there's just something so terrifying about that added focus of like people breaking into your home yeah but yeah that is the murder of the goldmark family that was terrifying in seattle washington So lock your fucking doors. Lock your fucking doors. Okay, so the one I picked is one that's probably one of the most well-known home invasion murders. Yeah, when I um, told Brittany this topic, you know, she did a little bit of research and she texted me back pretty immediately and was like, hey, have you picked picked a case yet? And I was like, oh, not yet. I haven't really looked into it. And she was like, okay, mine's from Connecticut. And I'm telling you this because the second you start looking, you will find it. So don't look into it. And I was like, okay, like whatever. No. I mean, I I had to change because home invasion murder, it was every single article on on Google. Like page one and two was all about this case. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. And that's why I texted you so quickly. But I did the Cheshire, Connecticut murders. You ready for this? I am. And I... I don't know anything about this, and I wonder if it's one that I will know about. Like, once you give details, I'll be like, oh, I heard about this. But I don't think so. I don't think so. So, Cheshire, Connecticut is known as the bedding capital, as in, like, plants and planting things and gardening. It's a farming community. Oh, I was like, <laughs> you mean, like, there's the quilt factory there? No. Or, no. like, it's just full of people bedding other people? That's every community. But, um, no, they're a farming community and a veteran community. So this woman, Jennifer Petit, she was 48, born on September 26, 1958. And she was like the girl next door type personality. She was very well loved in the community. And she was a nurse and co-director at the health center at the Cheshire Academy, which is a private boarding school. She met her husband, Will, um, also referred to as Bill, and that's how I'll refer to him throughout, in 1985 on a pediatric rotation at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh when he was a third-year med student and she was a nurse. Oh, I want to marry a doctor. I mean, like, yeah, don't we all? My dream is my, my future husband is a cardiothoracic surgeon. That's just, that's, I'm putting that energy to the world. Put it out there. Let it it's come back there. to you. Let me Marie Kondo this shit. So they met, they fell in love, they got married, and they had two girls. 
Their oldest daughter was Haley, born on October 15th, 1989, and in 2007, she had just graduated from Miss Porter's school and was about to attend Dartmouth College. So Haley was an active fundraiser for multiple sclerosis research, and this was after she found out that her mom, Jennifer, had been diagnosed with the disease, and so she wanted to do Mm. something. Um, She ended up raising $50,000 to help towards her mom's treatment. Holy shit. And she's like, what, 17, 18? I mean, she just graduated high school. Yeah. Well, and at this point, she was even younger than that. Oh, my uh, she gosh. Was, she was one of those, like, very quiet students, straight-A student, just, like, super intelligent, super helpful. Their second daughter, Michaela, was born on November 17th, 1995. So in 2007, she was 11 years old. She was also a very shy type person, but would always be there to help people when they needed it. Yeah. So this family's life was just centered around sociability. Like, they were out in the community, they were known, loved, and just like your normal family next door. They're just, yeah, they're your, they're just the prototypical suburban family. Absolutely. So on Sunday, July 22nd, 2007, this was an evening that was like most other evenings. Bill got home at 7.15 And Michaela, who always loved to cook, had made some bruschetta and some pasta, and they were celebrating their upcoming mother's birthday. After dinner, he took the Sunday paper to the sunroom, and the girls, you know, went to the living room to watch one of their favorite shows. The show ends at 11. Haley goes up to her room. Michaela snuggled up to her mom in their parents' bed with her, like, new Harry Potter book that she was reading at the time. And Bill... Fell asleep on the sunroom sofa. Fast forward a few hours in time. It's Monday, July 23rd at 9.21 a.m. And 911 gets a call from a bank center manager stating that there's a woman there requesting $15,000. This woman had walked into the bank and said that her husband and children are tied up and they're being held at the house and that the men in the car behind her are requesting the $15,000. Oh, my God. This was Jennifer. Yeah. Two assailants had driven her to the bank for money. Fuck. One hour later, police arrived at the home and they saw... It took them an hour? You know, to get their shit together. I get it. An hour later, police arrived at the home and they saw two males exit the house and the house is engulfed in flames. The suspects left into the Petit family car to try to drive away and escape from the scene. They ended up ramming the cop car and continuing down the road. They were eventually caught, and they were found to be Joshua Komisarjewski, who was 26, and Stephen (laughs) Hayes, who was 44. After the fire was put out, it was determined there were three fatalities in one survivor. The mother, Jennifer, and her two daughters, Haley and Michaela, were deceased, and the father, Bill, was the one who had survived. Oh, God. So, obviously, the biggest question is, what the fuck happened? Yeah. So, late in the afternoon on that Sunday, the 22nd of July, Jennifer and Michaela went to the grocery store in Cheshire, Connecticut. They're picking up some food for the pre-birthday meal that Michaela really wanted to cook for her mom. Yeah. While they were at the grocery store, they attracted the attention of Joshua Komisarjewski, and he followed them home. Shortly after this, what the fuck? Joshua's friend, Stephen Hayes. So, like, yeah. this is the day before. Shortly after that grocery trip, Stephen sent a text to Joshua and he said, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. And like an hour or so passes and he says, Are we still on? 
And Joshua replies, yes. And Hayes says, soon? Joshua replies, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. And Hayes wrote, dude, the horses want to get loose. LOL. So this is like a very... This is fucking creepy. Yep, it's a very cryptic back and forth text message between these two guys. After they were arrested, Hayes was pretty quick to confess. Um, He said the two men had planned to rob the Petit House under the cover of darkness. So they wanted to do it at night. <laughs> and they wanted to like bind the family, but leave them mostly unharmed. Yeah. Hayes attributed the outcome of what happened to a change of plans. He said when we got when they got there in the morning on the 23rd, they found Bill sleeping on the couch on the porch, which is something they did not expect. Yeah. Joshua struck Bill on the head with a baseball bat that he found in the yard until his head had split open. Oh my god. They bound Bill's wrists and ankles with zip ties and then also with rope. And they told him that they were only there to rob the house. And they asked, like, where's your safe? Where's the safe? And Bill was like, we don't, we don't have a safe. There is no safe. So the two men went upstairs to the children and their mother. They bound them and locked them in their respective rooms. Then they went back downstairs, grabbed Bill, dragged him into the basement where they ended up tying him to a pole and threw a blanket over his head. So he could just, like, be out of their way. Yeah. The men ended up ripping the telephone line out of the jack. They ransacked the house for cash. They're trying to find anything they can. They ended yeah. up only finding about $103 in Haley's wallet. And Haley's the daughter. Yeah, she's the one that's like 17, 18 years old. Yeah. And they finally found a bank book, like a checkbook. And it showed the mm-hmm. available balance in the bank account. So they're like, all right, that's what we need to do. Yeah, someone's going to the yeah. bank. So... Stephen Hayes ended up going to a gas station and purchasing $10 worth of gasoline in two different cans and bringing it back to the Petit home. When he gets to the house, he unloads the gas cans, and that is when they took Jennifer to the bank. At this time, it's like 9 in the morning, the bank had finally opened, and they told her to withdraw $15,000 from her line of credit, and that's what they were going to do. So Jennifer's like, okay, all right, let's go. Yeah. She's like, cool, that money means nothing. Just make sure my family's safe. Yeah. So bank surveillance cameras captured the transaction and it shows Jennifer at the counter. And during the time when she's trying to get the money, she's obviously telling the teller what's happening. She's like, yeah, there are guys in the car. They're telling me to collect $15,000. My family's at home bound. And you can see these photos in this video. She's standing at the counter, like, you know, very calm. She's got a white sheet of paper that has some information on it. She actually did not have $15,000 in her account, but the bank teller gave it to her anyway. And at 9.23 a.m., Jen walks out of the bank back to the car. And that's like the last time she's seen. Yes. The bank manager immediately calls 911. And in real time, like, as Jennifer left the bank and was picked up by Hayes in the car. The bank teller is describing to the dispatcher what clothes he's wearing, what car they're in, and they drive away. Yeah. And the manager said that Jennifer said the assailants were being nice, and she just believed that they they only wanted money. I'm surprised that the bank teller didn't, like, press one of the panic buttons that, like, when you're being... When a bank's being robbed, they have 
you the know, pan- the button behind the thing. Underneath the counter. Or they have a... Mm-hmm. I know in some banks there's like, a, not a drawer, but like one of the sides of the cash register yeah. thing. That if you pull the money out of that, it sends a silent alarm. Yeah. So that if someone's like getting all the money, you... No, and maybe maybe but, they didn't have that yet. Like this was, I mean, yeah. it was 2007, but I don't know. Yeah, but it's a small town bank. I mean, and it, it could be one of those that it just didn't make sense to or something. Right. I don't know. Right. Well, the police responded to the bank's report and they began like assessing the situation. They're setting up a vehicle perimeter, wanting to be discreet and not reveal their presence around the home. Yeah. The first officer that got there is reported to have heard screaming when he got up to the house. So at this time is when Hayes and Joshua escalated this situation and they started to change their actions to be a lot more aggressive than they were originally. Joshua sexually assaulted 11-year-old Michaela. He performed oral sex on her and ejaculated on her stomach. And these were actions he later admitted during interrogation. What the fuck? He also sodomized her um, as his semen was found in an anal swab that was taken during her autopsy. And to make it even worse, he photographed this entire sexual assault on his phone. So there were photos. What the fuck? Then Joshua allegedly provoked Hayes to rape Jennifer. So Hayes is on the floor in the living room raping Jennifer and Joshua enters the room and he says, Bill escaped. So Bill's gone. Hayes then at this moment strangles Jennifer and doused her lifeless body and multiple parts of the house, including her daughter's rooms, with gasoline. So this was the gas that they had collected. Both daughters were tied to their beds, and gasoline was poured directly on them. Their heads were covered in pillowcases, and then they started the fire and fled the scene. Haley, who was the older daughter, managed to escape her restraints and run out of her bedroom into the hall, but she ended up collapsing and died, and her body was found at the top of the staircase. Michaela's body was found in her bedroom. She was still on her bed with her hands tied and the lower part of her body was kind of hanging off. So she'd gotten her feet out, but on her hands. Both of them had died from smoke inhalation. Bill had been able to free himself in the basement. He escaped his confines. He, his feet were still together. And so he kind of jumped up the stairs that led to an outside window in the basement. And he Mm -hmm. crawled through the window and he starts calling to the neighbor for help. The, the neighbor later indicated that he didn't recognize Bill due to the severity of his injuries. Throughout the entire time that Bill was tied up in the basement, you know, he was forcing himself to stay awake and he could hear birds chirping. So he knew like the sun was coming up. It was day was coming and he heard the sprinklers go up yeah. at 5 a.m. Remind you, Bill had been beaten with a bat. So he had mm-hmm. about five to six, three to five inch cuts in his head. And he is losing a lot of blood. Yeah. A um, little bit later, you know, after 5 a.m. sprinklers, he heard Jennifer's voice saying she needed to get her husband's checkbook. And this is when Bill realizes she's being taken to the bank. So he's kind of following what's going on in the situation. Um, yeah. It then starts to get really quiet. And he heard moans and thumps above. And he later testified that it sounded as if, as if someone was throwing 20 or 50 pound sacks on the living room floor so obviously she's being beat she's being hurt yeah at this point in time he later testified that he had this jolt of adrenaline coupled with the need to escape because one of the perpetrators said don't worry 
it's all going to be over in a couple of minutes. He told the jury he thought it was literally now or never because in that moment, he thought they were all going to be shot. So if he was going to escape, he had to at least try then. Yeah. By the time he got out of the house, the cops were there, but he, he couldn't see them. So he like gets out of the basement and he collapses and he rolls himself across the lawn to his neighbor's garage door. So that's later where yeah. Bill is found. Moments later is when the home goes up in flames. This entire home invasion lasted seven hours. So this scenario, like all of this detailed information, was revealed in a confession by Hayes just hours after the killings. Like right as he was captured, they took him in, they got him to confess to everything. And while he was being interrogated, investigators and detectives said that he smelled so strongly of gasoline. Like obviously there had been an accelerant used. That's all they could smell. Yeah. Both Hayes and Joshua were blaming each other, implicating each other as the mastermind and, like, the driving force behind what they did. There was even a moment where they were blaming Bill, the dad, as an accomplice, which was total bullshit. That wasn't a thing. So later, during the time of his incarceration, Joshua kept a diary. And this diary, because of what he wrote down, was later entered into evidence. And he called Bill a coward and claimed that he could have stopped the murders if he really wanted to. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, you know, his response to, I don't know, not wanting to take blame, I have no idea. Shit. Thankfully, like I said, the perpetrators were quickly arrested. Yeah. Oh my god. Sorry, I need- Yeah, no, you need a drink after all that. I need wine. Because that was heavy Um, as- God, I, uh- I mean, I, I I kind of assumed that was the kind of thing with home invasion. I don't know. I just, to me, you always think of these, like, insanely brutal, insanely fucked up murders and things as being like, oh, that's something that happened in a movie. Yes. Real life isn't like that. That doesn't really happen. Real life is scarier. It's just upped that way for, you know, cinematic whatever the yeah. fuck. But no, that shit happens in real life. And it, you know, it obviously it comes from a big ass place of privilege that I can be like, oh my gosh, that must be fantasy because of how horrible right. it is. Because I mean, there there are people whose everyday lives are going through something like that. Mm-hmm. That's one thing about um, true crime that is so, I think, I don't know if endearing is the right word, but I like it because... I feel like in a lot of movies and stuff, it glorifies the violence as, like, entertainment. And to me, if you found a true crime podcast that used the violence as entertainment, I mean, it would get get shut down real fucking quick because that's not what the true crime community... It's... I mean, it's about... It's about justice. It's about informative. You know the shit that what these people went yeah. through, and it's also about the strength of some of the people have, you know, to fight through it. And it's the heartbreaking factor of these people that didn't make it. Yeah. And I don't know. It's it's one thing that confuses me so much how glorified violence is in entertainment, just in general. In entertainment, yeah. yeah. It's just so pervasive. If this were a movie, you could easily make this a PG-13 movie that 14-year-olds are going to watch for entertainment. Yeah, that's that's heartbreaking and sickening. fucking horrible. But one thing I really like 
about the true crime aspect. And again, y'all know I don't really listen to true crime podcasts. I like watching documentaries and stuff, but I like that it really does, it takes the focus away from the act and focuses on the victims. Yeah. Which is something you don't get out of entertainment. If it's something that's focusing on the victims, it's focusing on like this character trope or this, it it doesn't actually focus on the victim as a person. Yeah, it doesn't. It's more the act and what happened. Yeah. yeah. So obviously the family of the victims and the city were furious. Yeah. Why did the police not enter the home sooner? Especially after... I mean, yeah, that was my first I know, especially after they heard the screams. Uh You know, the, the family felt that the police had not done a great job because there were fatalities. And yeah, they, they could have been prevented because the police yeah. were at the scene for 30 minutes. So right after Jennifer and Hayes returned from the bank, when everything happened... The police were they there were setting, before, during, and yeah, after. They were setting up the perimeter. So while the, the family fuck? is being attacked, gasoline being poured on them, raped, the police were right outside. What the fuck? On November 7th, 2007, the court imposed a gag order, which barred police, lawyers, and witnesses from speaking to the news media. Because obviously, the questions are everywhere. Yeah. And the family, you know, they would write letters, they would do whatever they could, and they were getting no responses. It was almost as if the the police department didn't want to admit they had done wrong, and so they just weren't talking. The city... And, like, the residents immediately wanted death of the suspects. So, Hayes and Joshua, they were like, fuck a trial, hang them, we don't care, torture them, burn them alive, get rid of them. Yeah. Which is such an unjust I mean, that's... reaction, but also it's a gut reaction. Get yeah, it. well, that's the that's the core emotional response. Yeah. And that's that's the reason that people are given juries that have the ability to To, be analyze the information and yeah because i mean yeah if we went back to the days where the jury is the mob that's lynching people then no justice can't actually be served no so as because as much as i get it if i mean if something like that happened to my family my friends like my community yeah as much as i'm against the death penalty i'd be like fuck that shit no, let them fucking yep. burn. But I also know that I shouldn't be on that jury. No, exactly. Exactly. Or whatever, you know. Well, yeah. and this brings me to where I realized I forgot to name my sources. Um, I Oh. <laughs> it's all yeah. good. I used Wikipedia, the New York Post, and the HBO documentary, The Cheshire Murders. So HBO did oh. a doc. It's about two hours long, and it goes into a lot of detailed information about about Joshua and Hayes. And I am not going to get too deep into the two of them because... They don't matter. I would rather (laughs) focus on the victims and what happened. Yeah. But if you're curious to learn more about them, there's a lot of information in this documentary and I recommend it. It's done very, very well. They really dug into the details. But like these two men knew each other and they both had... Mm -hmm. Lots of backgrounds in criminal history, mental disabilities, and they had recently been released from a halfway house about two months prior to the crimes. And, you know, that's how they met one Mm. another. Well, I feel like there are times when it's appropriate or necessary to go into detail on the backstory of the perpetrators. Like in mine, I had to go a little bit into his backstory to explain like 
the political motivations and like why. But I feel like too often there are sources that, and I get it as the gut reaction because it's like, it's that ever why, why did they do this? That, you know, will give a paragraph to like, oh, murdered his victims, did this. And the entire thing is just about the killer. Mm -hmm. And it's a slippery slope because on one side, context is important. There's no justification for murder. But if someone did this due to a a psychotic break and a mental illness, you know, that is important to know whether they did this just because they're fucking evil. But... I don't know. I I feel like it's very dangerous because you can very quickly focus so on them so much that other people will be like, will see it as glorifying and be like, I want that level of fame. Right. You know? Well, and this like definitely takes me into our Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy episode where those episodes mm-hmm. were focused on, you know, for the most part on the killers and not the victims and it's yeah. just it's when you determine like what is your motive for the the tale that you're telling and is it mm-hmm. a psychological deep dive into why this happened or is it a deep dive into who this happened to and why it happened to them and it's just depending on the case mm-hmm. there can be a very different approach mm. to the information but it just It makes me sad because there are so many cases you'll see that the murderer has their own Wikipedia page, countless sources and stuff. And the victim is like... Mentioned in a line. Samantha Thomas. She was a grocery store clerk. I know. That's it. And I'm like, no. You have all of this background about like when he was in third grade, he entered a science fair project and did this... And yet, no information about the victim. You, know, you don't even give the age of the victim. Right. And it's just, I don't know. Because I know we made a very concerted effort on our uh, crimes that shook the nation when you focused on the murder of Sharon Tate and I focused on the murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman to try to really pull it away from not being and it was so hard. Charles Manson and OJ Simpson. It was Simpson. so hard. And it's hard yeah. because. There's not a lot of information out there on the victims, even though the victims themselves were very well known. Exactly. Because the focus is on the killers and it's it's not okay. So the two men, Joshua and Hayes, were both tried separately. So the first one I will cover is Hayes' trial. Um, Hayes had a background of criminal activity and his first offense took place when he was 16 years old. And he's the older one, He's the older one. He's the one that's like 44. Jury selection began in January 2010 and Bill was present each day in court when Hayes was being tried for kidnapping, sexual assault, arson, and murder. So a pretty lengthy list. Yeah. At the time, Bill was recovering from his brain injury and He was only able to sleep a couple hours a night. He lived with his parents at the time, and every night at 3 a.m., which is the same hour that he was attacked, he woke up. After months in the courtroom gallery, he did finally testify against Hayes, and Hayes was found guilty on 16 of 17 counts related to the home invasion on October 5th. 2010. After the trial, Bill finally spoke to the press. There was a reporter that asked him whether the conviction brought him closure. And Bill said, I don't think there's ever closure. I think whoever came up with that concept is an imbecile. Because how do you get closure when your entire family is murdered? Yeah. 
So on November 8th, 2010, the jury returned a recommendation for execution for Hayes. Judge John Blue formally imposed six death sentences, one for each of the capital charges, and he then added a sentence of 106 years for other crimes that Hayes committed during the home invasion, which included kidnapping, burglary, and assault. And Hayes was formally sentenced to death on December 2nd, 2010. However, his sentence became an automatic life sentence in 2015 when Connecticut abolished the death penalty. Yeah. For the first time in state history, the Connecticut State Judicial Branch offered post-traumatic stress assistance to the jurors because they had served for two months on the triple murder trial and they had been required throughout this time to look at disturbing images and hear, like, the ghastly testimony. And so... They were offered I don't. PTSD, which I'm like, should that not always I be I didn't a thing? know that wasn't a standard. Yeah. yeah. I would have assumed that that was... Standard? Yeah. And it wasn't. Because The very are... first time Connecticut ever did this was in 2010. So, Joshua's trial. Josh had been adopted by the Komisarjewski family when he was very young. He was, you know, his mom was like 16 and had a baby, set him up for adoption, And this Mm -hmm. family, who was really big in theater and acting from Russia, adopted him. Joshua was very highly intelligent. He had a photographic memory. And he kind of fell into the path of burglary at a young age. And because of his memory, he could recall every burgle he ever did. And he could even state what specific bills he took. Like, how many 100s, 5s, whatever, years after he had done it. He would manipulate people, and he even burgled the homes of state troopers. So, like, Kid is taking some risk. Yeah. He was seen as Hayes' co-conspirator in the home invasion and murders, and he remained incarcerated in lieu of a $15 million bond until his conviction. His trial started on September 19th, 2011, and then... Less than a month later, on October 13th, he was convicted on all 17 accounts. I wonder, just going back just a couple sentences, like, is there a limit to what you can set bond or bail at? Like, if there was a judge, because I know they can deny bail and bond, but I wonder if symbolically, if there would ever be a case or a reason for a judge to be like, oh, I'm setting bail. I'm setting bail at $350 billion or like something. You know... I think, and this is totally just my assumption, but I feel like they will pick a number that they know is unobtainable by the family. Yeah. And so... Because well, I know you usually only have to pay 10% of it. Um, yeah. To get to out. Actually, yeah. But I wonder if there's like, you know, if there are guidelines on like, oh, X crime has bail or something. I don't know. If there'd ever be a case where, because I know they'll, like, in civil cases, judges will have a symbolically high Mm -hmm. amount that's, you know, $2 billion. And it's like, okay, well, that's not going to happen. But it's, like, important for the gravity of the case that it be a really high amount. So I wonder if there'd ever be a case where it'd be symbolically something that's just like, well, okay, that's the GDP of a small country. That's not happening. Right. No, I'm sure that that it's obviously at the discretion of the judge. Like, they get to pick that number. But I know there are reasons behind why they pick the number they can. And it's more so along the lines of, do I feel that this person is 
enough of a threat to society that I really need to maintain them. But for some reason, I can't give them like no bail. So I need to set it at such a high number. Or is it someone like, for example, Robert Durst, who his bail was set and his family's been loaded. So they paid it and he was out. Like, yeah. So back into my story. On January 27th, 2012, Judge John Blue, so the same judge, sentenced Joshua to death by lethal injection, but Joshua's sentence was also commuted to an automatic life sentence in 2015. Yeah. So the biggest part of this case is, and not necessarily, I say the biggest part, a big part is the community and the family's feelings around the police not doing everything they could. Yeah, where was there any conclusion no, there? There is no conclusion. Was there any reason given as to other than like, oh, we are setting up the perimeter? It's like great. No, there are so many cases in um the fucker in Toronto, the serial killer that you did a couple episodes ago. Yeah, Bruce MacArthur. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. How police um when they were catching him, they were outside and they heard screams and they're like, motherfucker, we have probable cause. We're going in. No, and like these police in this case, they're saying how. They heard the screams. They could have gone in. They also had probable cause because she literally told them at the banquet was going on and they followed they didn't her or like go in. they knew and they didn't go I know. in. And I don't understand it. And so in the HBO documentary, they go into this a bit, but it's like the police knew that they totally fucked up, but they didn't want to admit it. Mm-hmm. And so they just bury it. Well, and it's one of those things that to me, lack of accountability is one of the scariest things in the criminal justice system yes. as a whole because unrelated to this case but related to the accountability piece, do you remember it was 3-4 years ago, Holtzclaw in Oklahoma City. He was an Oklahoma City police officer who had been no. pulling over women and raping them. Oh, for years. Yes. And he would specifically target women of color and women of low socioeconomic background. And basically, he'd target people that either are not likely to go to the police or ones the police wouldn't believe. Yeah. And there were so many times when it was known and the whole, like, I don't know if it's a brothers in arms thing, like, what the fuck it is, but they're like, protect our own, fucking bury this. And to me, that is, that that's just fucking horrifying. I remember specifically, there's a video of a police officer. I don't think he's the police chief, yeah. but I, I think it's a police officer talking to the news saying like, well, if you don't want to get raped by a police officer, just don't get pulled over. Oh my and God. And it's like, are you, what the fuck is wrong with you? No. What? That was actually said. Yeah. I don't even know and I'm how like, to react. But it's to that, that same fucking victim blaming of, you know, if you don't want to get raped, don't drink too much or don't wear those clothes or whatever, whatever. And it's like, all, first off, fuck yep. you. Second off, you're not saying don't get raped. You're saying make it easier for the next person to get raped or the next person to get murdered. Just make sure it's not you. Make sure it's someone else. And I'm like, No, it should be, make sure they don't fucking rape people. Make sure they don't fucking murder people. Not make sure someone else is the victim. And not you. But um, yeah, no, um, accountability. Yep, it's true. It's true. 
Well, so a lot of um, very positive things have come out of this tragedy. In 2007, a man named John Carpenter, he was an employee of the Chase Collegiate School, ran the New York City Marathon and raised over $8,000 for the Miles for Michaela campaign, which was a scholarship benefit that had been set up. And that same year, Bill Petit established the Michaela Rose Petit 2014 Scholarship Fund at the Chase Collegiate School. So it was another fund that was set Mm -hmm. up. And he also established the Haley's Hope and Michaela's Miracle Multiple Sclerosis Memorial Fund to raise continuous funds for multiple sclerosis, which Jennifer had. And on January 6, 2008, over 130,000 candles were lit in the front of thousands of homes across Cheshire in the Cheshire Lights of Hope, which was a fundraiser that was set up for multiple sclerosis um, and as a tribute to the Petit family. And this was founded by a local couple, Don and Jennifer Walsh, and it raised over $100,000 for Haley's Hope and Michaela's Miracle Memorial Funds. And this HBO documentary came out in 2013, And Bill, he survived the horrific murder of his entire family. And so rebuilding his life was not easy. No, that made me tear Uh, up. Yeah, tell me about it. I had to do the research today. So Bill had to rebuild his entire life. I mean, his whole family was slaughtered. And he did end up meeting someone um, and he remarried in 2012. And Jennifer's family was there. You know, they were extremely supportive of him through this entire thing. And he did end up having a child with his new wife and they named him William Petit III. As he said earlier, closure is not necessarily something that can ever happen. You don't just forget something like this that happens to you. There's no way to really move on. It becomes a part of you. And so... You know, he was on Oprah a few years later and, you know, she shows him a picture of him with his old family and he's like, or, and she's like, is this the man you are today? And he's like, no, I don't think I'll ever be that man again. But he's become someone yeah. new. And like, this is a crime that I feel like had so many opportunities to be prevented and it wasn't. And three lives were lost in such a horrific way and Bill was somehow able to escape by like the sheer will of god i think that he was able to get out of that basement and not burn alive moments before the home went in flames but he had to continue living with what happened yeah no and survivor's guilt is absolutely absolutely he told you know the parents like jennifer's parents and and family that he felt so guilty that he couldn't do anything and that he didn't do more and they're like no bill we love you and you weren't in a position where you could do anything you did do everything you could and you know bill even says that when he escaped the basement he regrets going up the stairs that led to the exterior exit instead of up the stairs that led back into the home because even if he had have died maybe he could have done something and so it's just that that total survivor's guilt that plagues people who go through some type of horrific incident and come out alive that's the cheshire murders Um, there's a reason it's what you come across every time you google home invasion murders um post-mortem sure let's do it you go first uh i mean listeners i don't know if y'all could tell 
my voice caught there for a second. I needed that like couple minutes at the end where Brittany was talking and I was not responding was because I could not. Um, I heard your voice catch there at oh, the of end. Course, yeah. I mean, I I think that is both our cases were horrible and nightmarish. I'm going with you on this one. What are your thoughts? Well, after you said yours, <sighs> I was thinking that you got this, but after telling mine and like getting choked up throughout it, um, I'm gonna agree with you that mine was no, they're both super fucked up. But I'll I'll pick the topic, yeah. ma- or um, you'll pick the topic again. <laughs> I know. I was like, I'll I'll Sorry, pick the topic. Yeah. God, I just need to pick a nice topic. I'll pick nice crimes. I don't know. We're gonna do like <laughs> gas station candy robberies for the next episode because I know children. Shit, I can't children who shoplifted, and I'll be like, and I'll tell you this story about it child named Tyler who wanted a candy bar when he was six. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, um, I'm done. I'm exhausted. <laughs> I emotionally. I'm uh, same. I'm going to go back into my <sighs> Game of Thrones hole. Not that that is by any means a show that brings any type of joy because the, the topics are super, yeah. super fucked um, up. But that's what I'm about you to do. You do that. I'm going to go watch Shit's Creek, which is fun and light and funny. That show, by the way, listeners, if you have not watched Shit's Creek on Netflix, it is so good. It has the dad it's from American of... Pie, and he is like one of my yeah, favorite Eugene Levy people ever. And uh, his son, Dan Levy, who is just super cute. Like, that's what I want to be. Like, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I'm like, I could see myself. Like, less spoiled and stuff, but, like, yes. Yeah. Also, he's super cute. He's so cute. He's, like, he's di- he's the dangerous kind of hot that he's not, like, oh, you're so hot that, like, you're not a real person. It's the kind that, like, oh, no, you could husband me real quick. Yep. Um, regardless, also it has Catherine O'Hara, like, uh, queen. Amazing. And, yeah, it's a great show. If after this episode, like me, you need... Uh, some laughs and just some decompression and not to think Go about murder. Uh, doesn't have murder in the show, at least as far as I've gotten. Uh, but it's real fun. It's lighter. And it's just, it's a good one. Yes. Uh, but also make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you like. Um, give us those five stars. Yes. Be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Yeah. So check us out. Follow and you'll see all our updates. And with that, I'm glad I have not completely finished I know, my I wine. I still have yet. some I have wine too. One glass I need yet it. Because... Uh, I fucking need a drink. Um, but thank y'all so much for tuning in. This is Blood and Wine signing off. Bye, XO, you guys. XO. Bye. Bye. Bye.